The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Like no longer having the confusion or the sense of it's just not right somehow. Or we teach about uh, impermanence, how thing, nothing is lasting forever. It's always ending. Things are transient. All experiences are transient. Of course they are. But implicit in these teachings, even if it's not explicit, is this idea of beginnings. We see this showing up again and again. For me, often when I'm uh, giving a guided meditation, even if I'm, like, sometimes I'll give a guided meditation to myself, sometimes I even will use a little uh, voice to myself if I'm feeling particularly, like, unsettled. But I often hear myself saying, either out loud or to myself sometimes, if you find yourself lost in thought, begin again. Just simply begin again. You know, this idea of it doesn't matter how many times you've been lost in thought of what the mind has been doing. You always just very simply just come back to the breath. And it doesn't matter how many times we have to do that. 10,000, 10 million, 1,100, whatever. It also doesn't matter like how long we've been away, lost in thought. 10 seconds, 10 minutes, 10 hours. It also holds for our meditation practice, like even just coming to the cushion. Maybe you haven't meditated in years. Maybe you haven't meditated in months, weeks, days, whatever it is. We can always begin again. And in some ways, it's even to be um, really valued. There's this, of course, probably many of you know this book by Shinru Suzuki, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. This recognition that in the beginner that there's this possibility, there's some opening. Whereas the expert has this idea of like, oh yeah, I have everything, I I got it. I, I don't need to learn anything new. This is kind of... Um, exemplified by this story of a Zen, or I should say Buddhist professor going to the Zen master and saying, you know, I I understand a lot about uh, Buddhism, but I'd like to learn something from you. And the Zen master says, great, thank you. Yeah, welcome. Come on in. Here, have a cup of tea. And the Zen master offers the professor a cup. Zen master gets the kettle of tea and pours and pours and pretty soon the tea's coming up near the top and starts to overflow and the professor's like, wait, 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 it's overflowing. And the Zen master said, the cup is like your mind. You think that you have all the answers. There is no room for anything else. There's no room for me to pour anything in there. So this idea of beginnings being valued. And not only are they valued, just an encouragement to always come back and begin again. And of course this whole idea of beginning is 
part of this uh, notion of cultivation, whether we're cultivating mindfulness or loving kindness or our ethical conduct, showing up with truthfulness and not causing harm. Of course, that has some beginning, too. So maybe I'm like uh, saying again and again this word about beginning, but I also want to share something about the Buddha and his beginnings, some of the ways in which his the story of the Buddha's awakening shows up. We tend to idealize the Buddha, which is a beautiful, fantastic thing to do. We can also emphasize maybe some of the things that we, where he didn't take a clear, straight line, that his beginnings maybe weren't as obvious or straightforward as we might imagine. The story of his seeking for awakening is that he became dismayed with the life that he was living, even though it had so much... uh, opulence and luxury and sensual pleasures, probably anything that was available there at that time in ancient India. And became dismayed with this after seeing someone who was old, someone who was sick and a corpse, recognizing that that was going to happen in his life also. So instead, he set out to seek the supreme state of sublime peace. The supreme state of sublime peace. Anuttaram santavarapadam. So I went and he, with some teachers and learned about some meditation practices and excelled at them. Still hadn't found this state of sublime peace. Then he did some extreme asceticism, still didn't find these states of sublime peace. Then he does the middle way, not extreme austerities, not extreme opulence, and sits under a Bodhi tree to discover this sublime peace. And he does. I like this expression, sublime peace. In some ways, I think it's all what we're looking for. A place where we can rest, have some security, the sense of, ah, like maybe like this final exhale. But the Buddha, he had to find his way. It wasn't so clear exactly how to get there. So his beginning of his seeking wasn't always, you know, just a clear straight line. He knew exactly how to get there and didn't waver, didn't do anything else. Took him a number of years, many years. So then he's awakened and then he doesn't begin to teach. The story is that he hesitates. He's like, how am I going to explain this? 
There's so many people that just wouldn't understand this and when he decides to not teach. And the tradition holds that there is a special classification of uh, individuals like this. They're called Pacheka Buddhas. The Pacheka Buddhas are those individuals that um, become completely awakened through their own, um, without having heard any teachings, and decline to teach. It's a valid path. Not everybody is intended to be a teacher. But then there's some intervention and the story is that uh, some divine intervention comes down and says, no, but you must teach. And so he does. And as I mentioned the other day when I was talking about uh, impermanence, I'll just mention briefly that he first teaches this former practitioners, these uh, group of five that he had been practicing austerities with. And when he approaches them, they all agree amongst themselves, we're not going to treat him with respect. We will acknowledge him, but we will not treat him with respect because he gave up the austerities and is now living in luxury. So when he shows up, the group of five, speak to him in a, what, the, what the Buddha considers a disrespectful way. But then he convinces them that, um, no, in fact, he is awakened and that they should listen to him. And he gives them teachings. And even for them, who have the Buddha, who's you know, just freshly awakened, it takes them quite some time to become awakened. The story is of how they had to go out repeatedly for alms rounds, so days. And some of them would go out for alms and come back and get food for all the rest before these group of five are awakened. And then the sixth person that the Buddha meets and gives a teaching to is Yasa, who is this lay person like us. The Buddha gives him some teachings. He becomes awakened. These individuals had been practicing austerities, like extreme austerities. It took them quite some time. A lay person like us got in immediately. We might wonder, why is that? I don't know. We can speculate. Maybe the Buddha was still learning how to teach, and maybe his teaching wasn't the best for this group of five. Maybe these group of five, in order to do such extreme austerities, you have to have a rigidness. You have to have a fundamentalist. Uh, you have to have a very um, kind of like narrow way in which to live, right? To do extreme, to do the uh, type of austerities, or, you know, starving oneself, for example. Whereas a lay person doesn't have that. They have this little bit more flexibility of mind, trying things and seeing things, experiencing different things. 
And I'll come back to this later about the teachings that Yasa received that helped him to become awake. But before I do that, I want to also just say, of course, we have all had our own beginnings with practice. I remember the first time I ever sat down to meditate. I was uh, at a meditation retreat. (laughs) I thought I knew how to meditate, but actually I didn't. I had done yoga and I thought lying down on the floor with eyes closed for a couple of minutes was meditating. But I had a hard time on that first retreat. But, you know, that was the beginning of my practice. All of you had a beginning. The beginning of maybe reading the Dharma, a Dharma book, or hearing a, a podcast, or an app, or coming to a Dharma talk. But one thing about beginnings is that they're about change, something new. When I was working in corporate America, there was a time in which uh, there was a lot of planning happening about some changes that were going to happen. And, you know, to you know, make certain improvements and... And I remember this one individual saying to a group of us, saying, you know, if we're going to make changes in how the department does things, if we're going to make changes, this means you actually have to change. And I remember at that moment feeling like, oh, I was just kind of hoping I could stay exactly the way I was, kind of comfortable with the way things are. But this recognition of like, oh yeah, if things are going to be different, then it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable. I have to get out of the usual and do something new. And pointing to that, I'd like to read a poem about beginnings. It's written by John O'Donohue, an Irish poet. And it points to this, about this, the beginning, the new, the new year, whatever it is that's going to begin for you. And it starts this way. In out-of-the-way places of the heart, where your thoughts never think to wander, this beginning has been quietly forming, waiting until you are ready to emerge. For a long time it has watched your desire, feeling the emptiness growing inside you, noticing how you willed yourself on, still unable to leave what you had outgrown. It watched you play with the seduction of safety and the gray promises that sameness whispered heard the waves of turmoil rise and relent, wondered, would you always live like this? Then the delight, when your courage kindled and out you stepped onto new ground, your eyes young again with energy and dream, a path of plenitude opening before you. Though your destination is not yet clear, 
you can trust the promise of this opening and furl yourself into the grace of beginning. This is at one with your life's desire. Awaken your spirit to adventure. Hold nothing back. Learn to find ease in risk. Soon you will be home in a new rhythm. For your soul senses the world that awaits you. This encouragement for beginning... I appreciate that in this first stanza is this line, this beginning has been quietly forming. There's less emphasis on willpower and brute strength and I gotta do this, I should do this. Instead there's this feeling of something that's growing, something that's finding its way maybe like those little blades of grass that show up in the sidewalk or after a rain, these little mushrooms that just pop up everywhere, just so delightful, kind of unexpectedly in the lawn, in the wood, or the, a log that has fallen down, whatever, whatever we see it. The beginning that is quietly forming. So there's more of this emphasis on allowing and this unfolding and furling, this growing, instead of, okay, I should do this, I'm going to make this happen, you know, that lasts for as long as it lasts. But instead, it's pointing to something that's, you know, that's naturally forming, and that can grow. And this poem also includes these lines... It watched you play with the seduction of safety and the gray promises that sameness whispered. The gray promises that sameness whispered. And the seduction of safety. How often have our reality doesn't match the promise? buy this, do this, you'll be happy. And it turns out that it doesn't. But instead, kind of like tuning in or you know, becoming sensitive to what's happening inside us, this and allowing that to unfold and, and furl, this does carry this, some of this promise for something new, a new beginning. But maybe it's not neat and tidy. Maybe it's not even clear what it is. Maybe like the Buddha, we start going one direction and realize, mm, no, that doesn't work. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go this direction. Oh, yeah, that doesn't work either. But there's this kind of honoring of something inside, this uh, seeking this sublime peace. Maybe there's something inside of you that's showing or whispering something about sublime peace. This poem says, Though your destination is not yet clear, 
you can trust the promise of this opening. Trust the promise of this opening. My practice is all about opening. This is kind of like this gesture of like letting go. It's not the gesture of tightening up. And so often there can be the sense of straining. Okay, I got to do this. I know that um, I had this idea on a long retreat that I'm supposed to get really concentrated. I had this idea in my mind, okay, this is a long retreat, and this is why people go on long retreats, is to get concentrated. I strained so much. I went a little off the rails. (laughs) And the teachers were like, okay, Diana, stop meditating and just go outside and go... (laughs) You need to spend hours out hiking in, amongst the trees and just kind of loosen up. I just got so tense and tight and, I don't know, closed down, thinking you know, that that was the way to get concentrated. It turns out that if you want to have that mind be settled, there has to be openness. The sense of well-being is an integral ingredient. It's, it's not optional. The sense of well-being and how we define well-being maybe shifts and changes and as we practice. But it's part of what uh, supports this uh, seeking for sublime peace for all of us. I'll read this poem again. In out-of-the-way places of the heart, where your thoughts never think to wander, this beginning has been quietly forming, waiting until you were ready to emerge. For a long time it has watched your desire, feeling the emptiness growing inside you, noticing how you willed yourself on, still unable to leave, what you had outgrown. It watched you play with the seduction of safety and the gray promises that sameness whispered, heard the waves of turmoil rise and relent, wondered, would you always live like this? Then the delight when your courage kindled and out you stepped onto new ground, your eyes young again with energy and dream, a path of plenitude opening before you. Though your destination is not yet clear, you can trust the promise of this opening. Unfurl yourself into the grace of beginning. This is at one with your life's desire. Awaken your spirit to adventure. Hold nothing back. Learn to find ease in risk. Soon you will be home in a new rhythm. For your soul senses the world that awaits you. And again, that poem is For a New Beginning by John O'Donohue. 
And you might say, okay, Diana, that, that sounds interesting. I, I want to begin, but I, I really don't know where or what, or I, I'm not sure. Maybe there's something inside of you, but you don't have a clear sense of what to begin or how to begin. I'll offer the teaching that the Buddha gave to Yasa, the first lay person that became awakened. And what was the first teaching that the Buddha gave to this person? And which he also gave to Yasa's father and then two women. And they all became awakened. So what was this first teaching? Generosity. This generosity, this sense of opening, this sense of letting go, this sense of not holding in, not uh, clinging, but instead, you know, this this uh, this gesture of sharing, being generous of spirit. If somebody makes a mistake, not just immediately pointing it out to them, if maybe it doesn't really matter so much. The generosity of giving somebody the benefit of the doubt thinking, that doesn't really make sense to me what you're saying, but maybe there's a piece that I missed. Instead of saying like, a person doesn't know what they're talking about. Instead to say, there must be something here that you must know something that I don't know. Or maybe you can help me understand. Whether this is somebody we know or somebody that we hear about. This practice is not about acquiring more and more. This practice is not about getting tighter and tighter. This practice is not about acquiring or attaining or getting. It turns out it's all about letting go. And then this something, this something, this beginning maybe inside of us then has the space to blossom and become whatever it is going to become. And generosity is the first teaching. It's also the last teaching. After people are awakened, the Buddha gives the instructions for them to go out and to share with others, share the teachings, share the Dharma. And we can interpret the Dharma in a number of different ways, obvious way is the teachings, but that's not always appropriate. This is, we are not about proselytizing in this tradition. But the Dharma maybe is, you know, just the way things are. This recognition that we don't have to join in when there's some harming happening. The Dharma can be our way of our commitment to non-harming. It can be our commitment to learning about ourselves and cultivating some mental stability, some well-being, so that we can be a support for others. Generosity is also the ground of compassion. 
letting go, at least at that moment, of this sense of, okay, I'm only concerned with myself, but letting go of this and saying, oh, here is some suffering. May May there be an end to this suffering. And maybe it's just a movement of the heart. Maybe it's something that we actually do. But generosity is a part of letting go of only being concerned with myself or only those people that I like. But maybe there's others who are suffering and to have some generosity and spirit, or maybe it's, you know, literally with time or service or money. And this practice of generosity, we learn about ourselves. We learn about what is it that's easy to let go of and what are our cherished things, what's most important to us. And we can see, are these things that are supportive or not? We can feel into that. What are some of our beliefs that are the most important and what are the ones that we're willing to change? Our beliefs about who deserves things, our beliefs about the, what does money stand for or what things are worth or what's important, what's not important. So generosity is such a key and it's a beautiful teaching and it's awkward for Dharma teachers to talk about. So we don't. (laughs) But I wanted to just say this because uh, it can be such a powerful thing and it's something that all of us can do because we might have this idea, I want to begin something. I want to begin something that's going to support my life. And we have these high ideals. I'm going to meditate every day. It's a beautiful thing. I highly recommend it. But it's not always easy. We are not machines. We can't just do things like this. And sometimes we just have to begin again. But generosity is something that we can do when we're in our daily life, when we meet people, when we're having conversations with people. As I said, giving them space, giving them time, giving them the benefit of the doubt. It's something that we can do in so many situations as a way of practice. And then I'd like to end with this recognition that the beginnings also have implicit in them endings, right? You know, beginnings and endings, of course, they go together. And as I mentioned, we tend to talk more about endings. But these endings... Of course, there's a certain amount of letting go, of course. And here's another poem. This one's by Rosemary Traumer. I just love her poems. She's a fantastic poet. She writes a poem every single day, and she posts it on the Internet. So they're just generosity, right? Just freely offered. And this poem was written on December 24th, 2020. You know, right of the the pandemic. And it's called Bonfire of the Heart. I thought it was a good poem for the kind of like as the end of the year and as we're starting the new year. Rosemary Traumer, her poem Bonfire of the Heart. I throw in any tallies I've been keeping. 
the ones that record who did what and when. I throw in all the letters I wrote in my head but didn't send. I throw in tickets I didn't buy to places I didn't visit. I throw in all those expectations I had for myself and the world last year and countless lists of things I thought I should do. I love watching them ignite, turn into embers, to ash. I love the space they leave behind where anything can happen. I love watching them ignite, turn into embers, to ash. I love the space they leave behind where anything can happen. At the end of 2020, we had to let go of all kinds of things, but even just a few years later, every year, we all have these tallies. We've been keeping these letters that we wrote in our heads but never sent, places we didn't visit. Just put those aside. Make room for whatever is going to begin this year. Whatever is inside of us, something that's searching for this sublime peace, maybe in the same way that the Buddha had this sense, yes, there's something better. It is possible. I'd like to say it's possible. I know it's possible. My life is completely different than how it used to be. I have found a peace that uh, I certainly did not have years ago. So maybe with that, I want to wish you all a happy new year. And I'll open it up if anybody has some questions or comments. Thank you. Phil, you thought you were. Okay, now that you're, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Thank you, and happy New Year. Um, that state of sublime peace. Um, you told us the Pali phrase for it. Could you say it again slowly? Yeah. So um, this the the Pali was the highest state of sublime peace. Yeah. So let's see here, where's the Pali? I don't have this memorized, I have to read it. Um, Here it goes. Anuttaram, this means highest. Santi, Santi means peace. Vara is um, like sublime. And Padam is state. So the highest, the supreme state of sublime peace. Anuttaram Santi Vara Padam. Anuttaram Santi Vara Padam. Uh, Diana, there's a um, there's a question online. Uh, how do you drive consistency in your meditation habit? Yeah, that's the question, right? 
And we get all year to practice with that question. <laughs> okay, so consistency with a meditation habit. I'll just say a few things. There's lots of things, and we all get to find what works for us. A few things is to recognize that two minutes is better than zero minutes. There's something about just, or maybe even one minute. So sometimes there's this way, if like we can say, oh shoot, I haven't meditated for you know X amount of time. Oh, F it, I'm not going to meditate anymore. You know, something like that. We often do this, right? Where we just abandon the whole thing. So we are not machines. We will do this. I promise you, everybody does this. Can begin, and you can begin with one minute two minutes, something like this. This is a way we find some consistency. Two, come up with contingency plans. We often have this idea, okay, I'm going to meditate in the morning before I go to work and I'm going to squeeze in some time you know, there or something like that. But what we often don't say is have this contingency plan. If for whatever reason that doesn't work, then I'm going to squeeze in two minutes, five minutes, five hours, whatever it happens to be. When I get home from work, before I start cooking dinner, I'm just going to sit down for two minutes. Or I'm going to sit in my car for two minutes. Or something like this. You know, also have a contingency plan is good. Um, three is, it's helpful to connect to what's important for us. This recognition that you know, change is not easy. Doing something that we haven't done before is not easy. So on those times when it's tough, can we point to or connect to or remind ourselves or borrow some wisdom from somebody else, a book, a podcast, an app, a Dharma talk? Like, okay, yeah, I know this is helpful. I really don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. There's this way in which we can um, idealize, think that every time that we should always want to sit and we should always sit and it should be a pleasant experience or something. But there's something about keeping in mind the benefits, I guess, maybe is the word I'm looking for. And even when we don't have that in mind, to maybe look at... um, Others, or you know, look for some external support. I guess that's the word I'm looking for, which can be in many forms. Coming to a meditation center turns out to be really helpful. You can ask all the people here, myself included, right? And I just came from a retreat. And why do we go on retreats? Because it's hard to sit that much by yourself. And, you know, it's if you can with others, whether it's online or in person. I'd like to ask you, what are, what are you, some of you, what have you learned about ways to have some consistency in practice? Anybody has something they'd like to share? We don't all have to be perfect, but what, what are some things that have helped? A reminder on my calendar. A reminder on your calendar. Great, thank you. It's a great idea. We're so often looking at our calendars, right? Uh, <laughs> meetings, like, oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's to more guided meditations now, so I'll find a teacher or I'll talk with 
Yeah. Finding a teacher that you really like and listening to their guided meditations. I'm just repeating it so that uh, for the microphone. Anybody else? Have some? Yes. Thank you. And what is your name? Namita. Namita. Namita was sharing that she used an app, uh, 10% Happier. And uh, I, I'm familiar with this app. I know most of the teachers on there. I can uh, recommend them, right? Joseph Goldstein was one of my teachers, and he's a main teacher um, on that app. Um, and you, she was saying that there's like different topics on there, emotions or ethics or loving kindness. There's so much stuff on there. And you can choose the duration of the time. I think you have to pay for that app though, right? Yeah. Namita was also talking about the 7 a.m.s, Monday through Friday on YouTube, uh, you know, with Gil and friends. And, uh, and just coming here. <laughs> what about you, Jim? Yeah. Well, oh, well, I was going to say, so there were two comments. One, oh, yeah. uh, reiterating the, the 7 a.m. group on the week weekdays with IMC helps. Uh-huh. And also, audio, audio Dharma is absolutely amazing. Audio Dharma, wow. Right, how many thousands of talks are on there? I don't do guided meditations now. There was a time when I did, so I, there's lots of guided meditations for me and from Gil and so many teachers. And what about you, Jim, for your consistency practice? What have you what's, been doing? What's my consistency? Uh, well, I have a, a meditation app on my phone, and I have it set for a certain number of minutes. On days when I know I'm not even going to do that, I always at least start it so that it shows that that day got used. <laughs> so I, I see how many days in a row I can keep it going. Monday is often... Difficult because I don't use it when I come here to sit. I see. So that this is this is where often where the gap is. I see. I see. Um, but you're using an app too, right? Okay. Yeah. So all these modern gizmos. Yeah. There was one other comment that I heard a few weeks ago that was really good about this notion of getting having some ideal of what the practice is supposed to lead to, and. Um, what Anam Tubten talks about is that sometimes that can be just another chain mm. of like, I'm supposed to be, yeah. you know, perfectly calm and equanimous. He said, it might be better to just have the aspiration to be the person that your dog thinks you are. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. The person you know, your, your dog, dog thinks you are. Your dog, I mean, if you have a dog or a cat or something, you know, kind of thinks that you're really this, you know, kind, yeah. you know, generous. I love it. I love it. That's so great. So that that's more doable in some ways. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Thank you. Okay. So thank you all and Happy New Year. <laughs>